0: So I'm John Cavadini. I'm professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame, and I also direct the Institute for Church Life at the Institute for Notre Dame. I'm very honored to be a guest here this evening as a friend of the Lumen Christi Institute and to be able to welcome you on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute to this evening's event. Also, a special shout out to the Ethics Club at the Divinity School for co-sponsoring this event, so thank you. Friends, if people know anything about the irascibly brilliant third century theologian Tertullian, they surely know his famously provocative statement, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? The presumed answer of Tertullian it would seem would be relatively little. Yet Tertullian himself powerfully deployed his formidable knowledge of Hellenistic philosophy, his knowledge of Athens in defense of Jerusalem, thus turning the love of wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom into a kind of, into a theological use, a sustained theological use. So what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem then? The premise of our gathering here this evening is a lot, actually, but also so much that the Christian sapiential tradition is inflected differently, in different ways, in different locales. For example, Rome, as Professor Bragg himself has shown us in an earlier essay or, more to the point this evening, Alexandria. The topic of our afternoon symposium explores the unique inflection of the combination of biblical wisdom and Greek philosophy that is, or was, ancient Alexandria. So friends, here's how our our afternoon is going to work. After I introduce our distinguished speakers, Professor Bragg We'll give a lecture with the title of the symposium, Athens, Jerusalem, and Alexandria, Christian wisdom between the Bible and Greek philosophy. And then Professor Marion will give a response. Then we'll have a brief period where the two, our, our two presenters will be able to interact with each other. And after that, the floor will be opened to question and answer uh, from anyone here. Okay, then I am honored to be able to introduce both of our distinguished presenters. Remy Bragg is professor emeritus of Arabic and Religious Philosophy at the Sorbonne and Romano Guardini Chair of Philosophy at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. He's also been visiting professor at Penn State University, Boston University, Boston College, the University of Navarra, Spain, and the University of San Rafael in Milan. In 2012, Professor Bragg was awarded the Ratzinger Prize for Theology. Sometimes that's referred to as the Nobel Prize in Theology. He's author of numerous books, as you know, on classical and medieval culture, religion, literature, and law, including Eccentric Culture, a Theory of Western Civilization, and Law of God, the Philosophical History of an Idea. Jean-Luc Marion is the Thomas Greeley and Grace McNichols Greeley Professor of Catholic Studies and Professor of the Philosophy of Religions and Theology and Professor in the Committee on Social Thought and the Department of Philosophy right here at the University of Chicago. He holds the Dominique Duval chair at the Institut Catholique de Paris. He's also professor emeritus of modern philosophy and metaphysics at the University of Paris IV, that's the Sorbonne, and is a member of the Académie Française. He has written many books in the areas of phenomenology, modern philosophy, and theology, including In the Self's Place, The Approach of St. Augustine, God Without Being, and The Erotic Phenomenon. And his most recent book to be translated into English is on Descartes' Passive Thought, the Myth of Cartesian Dualism. So friends, at this time, maybe we could welcome both of our distinguished presenters and Professor Bragg, who will come up to begin our evening. Well,
1: first of all, thank you so much for those so nice words of presentation. Uh, Well, I deserved them up to a point, but uh, up to a point only. (laughs) Well, all the less uh, that uh, I happen to be rather out of my depth on this problem. I received orders, you know, from a man to whom it is very difficult to say no. I mean Thomas Levergood. Who told me, well, you'll have to deal with the topic, the double topic, Athens, Jerusalem, and Alexandria, as first title and as subtitle, what you've just been hearing, i.e., uh, uh, Greek philosophy and Christian wisdom. And I told him, well, that's absolutely not my hood. Answer, never mind, do. Okay, then I <coughs> stood to attention, uh, shouted, uh, sir, yes, sir, and okay try to uh, read what was in my own personal library from people who had some importance in Alexandria and in the attempt at synthesizing Athens and Jerusalem. Athens and Jerusalem, two cities that have acquired for some time a symbolic meaning. Professor Cavadini has just been alluding to that. They stand for the two poles between which Western culture is said to oscillate. The content can be construed in many ways, faith versus reason, ethics versus aesthetics, free inquiry versus obedience, and so on and so forth. The difference can be understood in several ways too, as an irreconcilable conflict that compels one to choose the one or the other, or as a fruitful tension that keeps the Western mind alive. Sometimes other cities are conjured up for them to complement the two. Some are said to subvert them, like Thebes of Egypt, for the German Egyptologist and theoretician of culture Jan Asman, or like Mecca. Some other cities are said to build a bridge of sorts between them, such as Rome, or, for that matter, Alexandria. In a former book, published already 25 years ago, I reflected on the Roman way. Here, I will give some thought to this last city of Alexandria. Needless to say, I will focus on the subject matter that my subtitle intimates, i.e. Greek philosophy and Christian wisdom. Let me begin with some reminders of material history, however. For besides its symbolic value, the real Alexandria, the town made of stones, as well as its population of flesh and blood, was the place of quite a concrete encounter between Athens and Jerusalem, that is, between Greek and Jewish people, on the distant backdrop of Egypt. Distant was this backdrop because Alexandria was not felt to be in Egypt, properly speaking, but rather, as the Romans said, ad Aegyptum, on the brim of Egypt. This coastal city, mainly a harbor, was founded, as the name enables one easily to guess, by Alexander the Great, together with a bevy of other cities by the same name, all along his trade of conquests from from his native Macedonia to the Indus Valley. Well known is Alexandria because of the famous Alexandria Library that was founded in 288 before Christ and that remained there till it was destroyed unclear it is by whom. Furthermore, a philosophical, platonic come-Aristotelian school remained faithful to the ancient pagan religion, was active there, especially around Ammonius. It later on shifted to Christianity with John Philoponus and lasted till Stephanus of Alexandria, who died in 642, the very year in which the city was besieged and taken over by the Arab conquest. Yet there were not only scholars in Alexandria. To the contrary, the city as a large harbour with a famous lighthouse on the island of Pharos, hence, by the way, the French name for lighthouse, phare, The city was populated mainly by sailors and merchants from all around the Mediterranean. Greeks, Romans, Jews, Phoenicians, people of all ilk. We should be careful here not to yield to one more legend of a lost paradise of coexistence analogous to the legend of Islamic Spain. Not to mention the paradises that people, the imagination of the Western Left, and unfortunately of so many french intellectuals from soviet union to china albania cuba etc in alexandria coexistence between the different communities was not always peaceful and in particular it was far from being an exclusively positive place for judaism for it was there that the first anti-jewish riot in history took place in the year 38 after Christ. Modern Alexandria in the 19th century remained for a long time a melting pot in which people of many languages and beliefs rubbed their shoulders, and in which, curiously, the language of communication was for the most part French. The well-known four novels which Lawrence Dorrell published between 1957 and 1960, under the title of the Alexandria Quartet. You should have done that earlier, thank you. Uh, This work bear witness to that. Yet this tetralogy turned out to be some sort of dirge since the multicultural state of affairs that it depicts was already menaced by the aftermath of the Suez crisis in 1956, and still more, (coughs) by the nationalization of property by Nasser in 1961. At present, Alexandria is almost exclusively Egyptian, its language is almost exclusively Arabic, and its religion almost exclusively Sunni Islam. Well, Alexandria was not the only place in which an encounter between Greek culture and Judaism took place. This encounter began early. And in particular, it was not something new when Christianity set in with the preaching of the apostles. Hellenism had been present in the Middle East for more than three centuries before Christian era, since the conquest by Alexander the Great. Palestine was part of Hellenistic kingdoms, first the Lagids of Egypt, then the Seleucids of Syria after 195 before Christ. When the Romans came, they didn't drive away Greek language and mores. To the contrary, the eastern part of the Roman Empire was administrated in Greek. Alexandria was the place where the Bible was translated into Greek, according to the legend by 70 old men from the Jewish community who produced the so-called Septuagint. This Greek translation made possible the diffusion of biblical ideas and practices in the whole Mediterranean basin. It was the Bible of the Greek-speaking Christians who rapidly forgot the Hebrew original, with some brilliant exceptions, such as, has is, from Alexandria. The Hebrew Bible itself is not free from Greek influence. A Greek word has wormed its way into the Song of Song, Afirion, from phoreion, some sort of palanquin. The word palanquin is itself a loan word from the Hindi. And for as a rule, words designing material objects are more easily welcomed into other languages, especially when they designate new technical devices. As for intellectual pursuits, where they are more difficult to spot. One surmises some influence of Greek sensibility in the Ecclesiastes, in Kohelet, the style of which may remind one of Menippus of Gadara in present-day Jordan, next door to Palestine. Palestine itself was multilingual. The trilingual inscription on the cross gives evidence to the fact. Jesus may have spoken, apart from his native Aramaic and the Hebrew of the Holy Book and of the prayers, some Greek, perhaps with some words in Latin. In which other language than Greek could be interrogatory by Pilate? have taken place. In the present time, too, by the way, Palestinian youngsters speak their Arabic dialect, some Hebrew, or even flawless Hebrew if they attended Israeli schools, and a great deal of English. The Middle East had been for centuries, was, and remained till late antiquity, the fruitful and creative region, region of the ancient Western world as well in Persia, as in Syria, Iraq, Anatolia, the present-day Turkey since the 11th century. It so happens that I was given the opportunity to point this out right here in Chicago some years ago. This preeminence of the Near East, this intellectual domination of the Near East, holds true for theological thought, too. Basic tenets of the Christian dogma over the nature of Christ were defined in Alexandria against Arius with Athanasius and against Nestorius with Cyril, both of Alexandria. Well, now, this definition of a Christian dogma happened, this is a matter of common knowledge, thanks to intellectual tools that were philosophical in origin, hence, my subtitle Greek philosophy. Now what kind of philosophy was available on the market of ideas in the countries in which the early church fathers were active? An important most grassroot but often overlooked fact is chronological in nature. With year zero of our reckoning, Greek philosophy that began around minus 500 and lasted under its pagan form till 529 when the school of of, uh, Athens was closed, Greek philosophy was approximately at the middle point of its course. The so-called Neoplatonism was not yet there. Its late version from Proclus on was some sort of private property for some families. The leaders of the schools (laughs) belonged to the intermarried and so on. Greek philosophy was neither extant in the whole of its development when Christianity set in, nor for our Alexandrian authors was it available in its whole, and especially the part of it that we would now consider as most important. For the most part, philosophical thoughts were there in the popular, somewhat watered-down form. There were philosophers everywhere, including in the Hebrew or, and or Aramaic-speaking world. They are mentioned, some philosophers are mentioned in the Talmud, what was by and large on the market was what we call at present Hellenistic philosophy. Stoicism, Epicureanism, Cynicism. Origenes, for instance, gives examples of voluntary poverty among philosophers, and he quotes Democritus, Cratus, the Cynic, Diogenes, the Cynic as well. When he enumerates the philosophical schools, he quotes the Stoic, the Platonic, the Peripatetic, Aristotelian, the Epicurean, and others which he doesn't even name. Hence a plurality of choice. The philosophers who were on Athens' Agora when Paul spoke on the Areopagus, when Paul later had to speak on the Areopagus, those philosophers are said to have been Epicureans and Stoics. The only names of only precise names of philosophical schools that are mentioned in the New Testament. Plato was widely read. Origenes wrote somewhere that Plato was accessible to the literate only. There's a social gradient. Distinguish this distinguishes according To Origenes, again, Plato, the noble philosopher, from Epictetus, a more plebeian thinker, Epictetus, whom everybody could read. Aristotle's technical treatises were the privilege of high-brow schools that sort of kept him for themselves. If we take, again, Origenes' example, He tells, he had some knowledge of Aristotle's life. He tells, he retells the anecdote about Aristotle leaving Athens after Alexander the Great's death and explaining that he wanted to avoid the city, a second crime against philosophy. The first being, as a matter of course, Socrates' hemlock. As for Aristotle's teachings, Origenes quotes once the peri hermeneas, the de interpretazione, on the definition of a verb. And he mentions the peripatetic doctrine of the quinta essentia, the fifth element out of which the heavenly bodies are made. And that's it. Clemens of Alexandria, was way more knowledgeable about Greek philosophy, but I am far less knowledgeable on Clement than on Origenes, which means a great deal since my Origenes is rather shaky. I had simply no time to really delve into his traumata. Please accept my apologies. The basic tenets of the main thinkers were more often than not known indirectly through collections of opinions, what we call doxography. uh, On this problem, this philosopher Jones thinks that, philosopher Smith thinks that, philosopher Brown thinks that, and so on. Not a very rewarding kind of philosophical literature. Well, one speaks of the school of Alexandria. Was there such a thing as a school of Alexandria? Some words about method. It is not enough that some thinkers should share the same views or live in the same place for us to be allowed to speak of a school. Moreover, it is not enough to observe a kinship in thought between people who never got in touch with each other. Unless there is evidence of some real continuity in transmission, historians of ideas will hesitate to speak of a school. This is why, for instance, medievalists are more and more prudent when they mention a school of Chartres in, Fran- in France when the revival of Platonism in the 12th century is concerned. The first important thinker in Alexandria and the first who was really relevant for our problem, Athens, Jerusalem, were the Jew an older contemporary of Jesus, Philo of of Alexandria, said of Alexandria. He developed an allegorical reading of the Pentateuch looking for moral teaching in the narratives it contains. And he, therefore, brought to bear stoic and platonic ideas. The snag is that he remained without heirs among Jews. Hence, there was no Philonic school among them. After the redefining of Judaism around the Torah, around the Hebrew Torah, the Jews neglected Philo, and for that matter, Flavius Josephus, and they sort of left them to the Christians. This lasted till the Italian humanist. And Rabbi Zaria de Rossi, who wrote and published in 1574 his masterpiece, The Light of the Eyes, Meor Einaim, in which he calls back home, sort of, the uh, uh, Greek speaking sources for the history and intellectual elaboration of Judaism. On the other hand, Philo was heavily drawn upon by church fathers like Clemens of Alexandria. Origenes mentions three times the name of Philo, and in the Latin West, Ambrosius makes, made widely use of his writings. Now, there was a Christian school of Alexandria, a school of exegesis, biblical interpretation. Its beginnings are linked with its first leader Pantinus Pantinus died who died around 200 Now we know precious little about him N- next to the only source is a chapter from Eusebius's Church History He was says uh, Pantanus was, says, Eusebius is Sicilian by birth, and he is said to have sailed to India in order to preach the gospel, and then back to Alexandria. Yet the notice by Eusebius contains an interesting observation. Pantanus is said to have been originally a stoic philosopher. It is difficult to say whether philosopher was a full-time occupation, a job of sorts, or simply an interest, something like a hobby, or hardly more than a bombastic name for an inquisitive cast of mind. And now, what relevance shall we attribute to the fact that Pantainus is said to have belonged not to just any school of philosophy, but to the stoic one, His mission to India as a Christian missionary might bear witness to his apostolic zeal, but also to the cosmopolitanism defended by the Stoic. In any case, the model of a person interested in philosophy and converting to Christianity while remaining on the same track, i.e. looking for the truth, is exactly what we have in Justin who was not an Alexandrian, but hailed from Naples in present day Israel. Uh, no, sorry, present day occupied territories of Palestina. Justin tells us about his itinerary from school to school, from philosophical school to philosophical school, till his final discovery of Christianity as the true philosophy. And by this token, Pontanus's philosophical background establishes a continuity between the first apologists and the school of Alexandria. Moreover, the leaders of this school lived under the same conditions of persecution or of the threat of it as the apologists with Origenes, We are still several decades before Constantine's policy of toleration, and Origenes wrote an exhortation to martyrdom, and this proved not to be an exercise in rhetoric, for he had to suffer martyrdom himself. What did those people had to do? What was the, uh, the intellectual achievement as a possible school of Alexandria about the problem Athens-Jerusalem. They had a double task. On the one hand, they had to show that the Christian message is in continuity with two previous worlds of meaning. The Hebrew Bible on the one hand and Greek Greek literature and philosophy on the other hand. They had furthermore, and this is the second task, to drive a wedge of sorts between those two worlds. They had to make place for Christianity as what would be later called a third race, Tritongenos. They thereby fought on two fronts, endeavoring to distinguish themselves from Greek paganism and from what was about to crystallize as Talmudic Judaism. Now, both the Bible and Greek texts express a worldview which implies, too, a glimpse of the divine. And the struggle was not between some secular thought, to uh, uh, tell this in uh, anachronistic terms. It was between several understanding several ways for us to understand what the divine is all about. Now, although those two corpus of texts and experience, Bible and Greek philosophy may at first sight seem at loggerheads with each other, there is a common point, or rather a common root, and this common point or root is the logos i.e. the verbal nature of man and of reality as a whole. This has to do with a most revealing fact repeatedly pointed out by Pope Benedict, i.e. that the Christian apologists turned to the philosophers in order to look for dialogue partners and they didn't try to get in touch with a mystery cults, whose quasi-sacraments might have looked like the Christian ones. The encounter, this encounter, this fruitful encounter between Greek thought and in particular philosophy and the biblical religion, religion, sorry, in the singular, was not evident. It required some conditions that made possible the use of philosophical ideas are of plain humdrum human wisdom. It supposes a very important assumption, i.e. that there is a level of humanity that precedes its splitting asunder in different religious affiliations in the same way as it is common to nations races and so on and so forth social statuses and so on and this common element is again the logos now what was the concrete what were the concrete tactics of the church fathers of the early church fathers in order to cope with philosophy They had an ambivalent attitude, or or many ambivalent stances towards philosophy. There was first a wholly negative outlook. Philosophy is distrusted and even despised. Some simply poked fun at philosophers, like this fellow Tatian, who harps Upon the trite theme of the contradictions between philosophical schools. Even Origenes says that the cavillings, the sophismata of the philosophers, are, should be thrown into the same dustbin as the deceptions of the astrologers. Philosophers say, somewhere Aristotle, are like physicians who claim that they can cure but can't really help. They don't even cure themselves, since their lofty arguments don't prevent them from adoring idols, i.e. devils. A frequent argument on this point is that the philosophers succeeded among an elite of literate, or even learned people only, whereas the Christian message appealed to simple folks, to workers, to women, almost incredible, and converted them to virtue. This is to be found in Justin, and in Origenes, who claims that the message of the Christians is better known than the opinions of the philosophers. There's a second, tactics. This is the commonly accepted legend that the Bible was not only older than Greek lore, which is true at least for some of its parts, but its very source. The idea is to be found among the Jewish apologists of the Hellenistic period, like Philo and Josephus, and among Christians, Tatian and Origenus took it up. If if philosophy is the best thing that Greece produced, Greek philosophers can be beaten on this too. For the prophets were older than the Greek philosophers and they saw and proclaimed the truth to everybody by a method which was not demonstration but witness, martyrion. Philosophers cribbed it all from Moses. Greek philosophy is made of misunderstandings on the Bible. According to Justin, Plato read Moses but misinterpreted him. The identification of the supreme good with the imitation of God is to be found in Plato's Theatetus, says Origenes. But Plato had it from the Holy Writ. They took things from the message of the prophets, but misunderstood and even perverted them. This is what explains the pagan myths. The pagan myths were, allegedly, to be sure, made by devils who clumsily aped Biblical realities. A third and more positive characterization of what philosophy is all about and how philosophy can can receive a positive welcoming in Christianity is to be found in Clemens of Alexandria. He has a characterization of Plato that can be some sort of hermeneutical key for us to understand what the fathers found in him. Plato, says Clemens, was a zealous lover of truth, and he was the reviver, zo of the sparks, the Greek is enosma, of the sparks of Hebrew philosophy. An interesting phrase on which I will tell you some words later on. This is very interesting. Philosophy, according to Clemens, was present in the Bible, but as sparks only. And Plato blew on the embers and let them flare up. Plato brings what was implicit in Hebrew philosophy to an explicit conceptual formulation. And this may be some sort of program for the Church Fathers, who, this is a fourth tactics, the Church Fathers spoke of a barbarian philosophy. As is well known, the adjective had originally no derogatory shade of meaning whatsoever, but simply meant speaking a non-Greek language. The phrase barbarian philosophy and the idea is not Christian in origin. It stems from representations found in Jewish authors, like Philo, or in pagan authors like Megasthenes, about whom we know Precious Little, Megasthenes who wrote an account of India, which is quoted quoted by later authors. As for the church fathers, what they thereby meant with the phrase barbarian philosophy was the thought of the biblical prophets. This implies that there is some philosophy outside of the pale of Greek culture. Origenes speaks of Greek and barbarian philosophy, which a phrase that may refer to biblical authors, but also to the alleged to the alleged secret philosophy of the Egyptians or even of the Persians, of the Syrians, and so on. Each and every nation had its kind of philosophy. Now, the notion of a barbarian philosophy is worthwhile because it frees philosophy from the suspicion of being the folklore of an ethnic group a suspicion which recurs from time to time. For instance, whenever philosophy is said to be some sort of mythology, white mythology of the Greek language or of the whole Indo-European language family. In the ninth century already, the Arabic grammarian as-sirafi in his famous controversy with the translator, Abu Bishr Matta ibn Yunus, tried to reduce philosophy to Greek grammar. If you know Arabic grammar, you need no philosophy. Philosophy is simply the grammar of another language which we don't speak. This uh, grammarian had remote airs with a linguist who interprets Aristotle's categories as being hardly anything more than grammatical categories. For instance, the substance, the ousia, being, boiling down to be what we still call substantive. Last and not least, the fifth tactics, the church fathers could raise their sights from language to what makes it possible in the first place, i.e. the logical ability of human beings, that which the Greek philosophers themselves called Logos. And according to them, Christianity, <coughs> Christianity can trump up philosophy, can beat it with its own weapons, the Logos, because the, Chris, because the Christian experience of the Logos is, according to them, more complete than what is afforded by the philosophers. Justin quotes the various names by which biblical language and imagery expresses the relationship between God and creation. He quotes the glory of God, the Son of God, the wisdom of God, the angel, God himself, the Lord, the Word, the army leader, all this can be a way for the Bible to express uh, the relation between God and creation. He summarizes them all under the heading of what he calls a dynamis logike, a logos-like, I have to leave logos untranslated by so, so, so uh, well, various, so, so it's a motley concept. Yeah? Uh, and the uh, uh, logical, perhaps, could do logical power, but logical in a broader meaning, that mere logics in our sense. This dynamis logike was, according to Justin, begotten by God before creation. This is the Son as the Word of God, and this uh, thought is all the more remarkable that he begins his list of the different sides or aspects of this dynamist logique. He begins his list with two features that have nothing whatsoever to do with linguistic communication, such as the glory which designates in the Bible a visual phenomenon, some sort of light aura around the invisible God. And the second uh, um, word that he puts sort of into this, uh, uh, or under this dynamis logike is son. Sonship is a biological and social notion, nothing linguistic about it. For Justin, among the Greeks, Socrates, the patron saint of the philosophers, fought against the demons, demons who took the shape of pagan gods, and he did that by means of logos, by means of cross-examination. Among the barbarians, Christ was the logos incarnate himself, taking the form of man and becoming one of them. He contends, this is still Justin, that Christians have over the other other people an advantage. They possess the logos in its whole. The Greek is to logikon, to holon, global logos, sort of. Philosophers discovered truths thanks to the logos, but they had it only in a partial way. As for Origenes, he goes so far as to call Jesus Christ the logos in person auto logos recycling sort of a platonic way for well in order to designate the ideas you can call loosely speaking the the uh, the ideas his the idea of logos Now, the presence of Logos in Greek philosophy hardly requires a demonstration. Therefore, I will simply take it for granted and skip it. On the other hand, the presence of something like the Logos in the Hebrew Bible badly needs to be made more plausible. And this is what I will endeavor to do as a conclusion. There are philosophical thoughts in the Hebrew Bible to be sure not as such, not in conceptual form but in a narrative guise. Well, I already was given the opportunity to make this point so that I can here be brief. The idea well, there, is, there are two assumptions that make philosophy possible in the first place. The, first, the idea of physis, the idea of a stable nature underlying any change and prior to any convention, prior to any nomos, to say it in Greek. This idea is present in the Bible in the first narrative of creation, where each being is said to have been created according to its species i.e. producing the effects that arise from its nature, a nature that can't be changed. It's especially visible in the case of living beings. Aristotle said, anthropos, anthropongena, a man begets a man and not a cat or a squirrel. The Bible says, Each living being, the plants and the animals, are created according to their species and reproduce themselves according to the laws of their inner nature. And the second basic assumption that makes philosophy possible is the idea of human freedom. Now, the Bible supposes that man is free to answer God's call or to overhear it. The biblical God engages, therefore, into a dialogue with human beings. He never contents himself with dropping commandments from above and hurling menaces against whomever would disobey them. To be sure, the biblical God has a legislative activity. Four books of the Torah contain a great deal of commandments, positive and negative. But this activity, this legislative activity is embedded in a story of dialogical interaction between God and human beings. And this is embedded in a story which culminates in an intervention leading to a liberation of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And the the decalogue, the so-called Ten Commandments, are to be understood as the conditions that will enable the newly liberated people to keep its freedom, and among others, other freedoms, his freedom of speech, his free access to a God who speaks. For, and this will be the central thesis of this presentation, the biblical God is essentially verbal, a verbal God, essentially Logos. As the Creator, to be sure, in the first account of creation in which God speaks and things arise, spring into being. But this was the case in earlier phases in the development of biblical ideas in which God appears as the partner in a bond, in a covenant, with his people. The prophetic movement shows him Talking with his people, warning it, scolding it, telling its stories, reminding him of past events by telling such stories, consoling it by nice words. And the sages of Israel became conscious of the verbal character of creation, hence, of being as such, thanks to a process of deepening of the verbal nature of revelation a verbal character that was reflected by the prophets themselves and pretty early in the history of the prophetic movement says for instance the earliest one whose prophecies we kept there might have been earlier prophets but their uh, well prophecies were lost yeah? and his Amos Amos from Tekoa who lived in the early and middle 8th century before Christian era as a matter of course in the southern kingdom of Judah what he says is God doesn't do anything without telling his prophets the deep meaning, the Hebrew is sword, of what he does. God's doing, God's action in history is parallel to his speaking, and perhaps coincides with it. No event, no historical event is void of meaning. And this meaning takes the form of a linguistic utterance. Two centuries later, the second Isaiah, about 540 before Christ, has a short passage in which this reflection on the verbal character of the biblical God comes to a head. Let me quote it. That God is supposed to speak. For this is the word of the Lord who created the heavens. He is God. Who formed the earth and made it. He established it solidly. He didn't create it as a chaos. The Hebrew is tohu which uh, is to be found as everybody knows right at the beginning of the Bible in the first Uh, uh, account of creation. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have never spoken in secret in some spot in the land of shadows. I have never said to the children of Israel, seek me in the void. And this is again Tohu. I, the Lord, I say the truth, I declare what is right. Dober Tzedek Magid Meisharim we have here what one could call the triangle of rationalities. Reason, logos, is manifest under three aspects, as the well-ordered and intelligible character of a created world, in opposition to the the primordial chaos, as the clarity of verbal expression, in opposition to the discordant notes of occult experiences, and thirdly, As the rectitude of conduct in opposition to perverse ways. Virtue is the behavior according to Logos. We are here with Aristotle, sort of. God presents himself as speaking, as speaking subject, and as creator. But he doesn't thereby raise the spectre of domination, rather, he specifies the way he is going to speak. In the same way that he solidly established the earth, one can base oneself on his word. In the same way that he created it inhabitable rather than void, his affirmations display order and meaning. They are even vivifying as an order that makes it possible for an association of men to live together, in short, civilization. God does not speak in secret. Revelation took place in a public space when it was open, not in some lost corner. No doubt the allusion is to even as Sinai, but this is perhaps not relevant here. More important is the rejection of a purely private experience, which would be ineffable, whose content would be incapable of being expressed. The revealed content is open to examination. Hence, the order of creation, the clarity of linguistic communication, the justice and appropriateness of what is communicated all mutually reinforce one another. And those three elements form a triangle in which God shows himself to be a friend of Logos. More and more in the Hebrew Bible, revelation takes up a verbal character. It is not the sharing of ineffable mystical experiences, nor the showing of visible images. Hence, perhaps, the sharp rebuttal of idols, i.e., of images. We don't know. As a conclusion, some words about the relevance for the present time of the early church fathers was the school of alexandria successful or at least is it still relevant for us what early church fathers said about the logos is grounded upon the bible this is what i've just been trying to show it is important to point this out since what couldn't be tempted when could be tempted sorry to interpret their utterances as a way for them to play footsie with Greek philosophy, jilting thereby the link with Israel and its experience of God. And this is precisely what some historians of religion and some theologians called Hellenization of Christianity, an idea that was for them some sort of betrayal of original Christianity. Now, It is according to the Bible that the whole relationship between God and creation is pervaded with logos. Little wonder that Christianity, and in particular the early church fathers, had to look for help in the place where the logos reached its supreme fulfillment, i.e. in philosophy. There is something, however, That can't do any longer. The church fathers, seeking for announcements of Jesus in the Old Testament, indulged too much in allegorical reading. They were eager to find everywhere prophecies of the Messiah. In fact, not this and and that verse, but rather the whole of biblical experience points towards Christ Recapitulates it, but as an external focus, as the vanishing point towards which the various elements of the biblical message or messages converge, elements which otherwise would coexist without synthesis. The incarnation of the Word, of the Logos, is the coming to a head of a definite way to live and conceive of the relationship with God, i.e. the covenant, which is the basic idea of the Hebrew Bible, according to my humble self at least. What theologians called later the hypostatic union, i.e. the presence of two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, in the single person of Jesus Christ word made man is the peak of the covenant, is the bond made definitive and unbreakable because realized in one person. As a matter of fact, in the development of patristic thought, the period of the early church fathers dominated by apologetics was succeeded by the dogmatic period in which the nature of Christ or rather rather his two natures in his single person received a rigorous formulation. As I told you earlier, this happened of all places in Alexandria as well. And by this token, there is some continuity between the pursuits of the Alexandria Christians who all deserved well of Christianity. Thank you for your
2: attention. If you don't mind, uh, we'll uh, make my remarks seated. <coughs> uh, it's always a bit difficult to, uh, to comment on a lecture made by Brimi <coughs> Brag, because of the uh, comprehensive scholarship uh, he used to uh, develop each time. And uh, uh, but the good thing is that I can uh, take for granted uh, his argument and just make additional remarks more than comments. A first point which Remy uh, did not uh, uh, completely uh, explain is the title of our uh, <coughs> uh, conference this evening. Uh, A scene in Jerusalem, Lasmin Leo Strauss, uh, Lasmin, Shestov indeed, but also Leo Strauss because we are in Chicago. Uh, Leo Strauss, that is Alan Bloom. that is Saul Bellow, that is uh, all the tradition of the Straussian school in Chicago which was, to some extent, rooted on the dilemma Jerusalem and uh, Athene. And being myself <coughs> affiliated to the Committee on Social Thought, I know that. Uh, so, to say uh, Jerusalem, Athene, and Alexandria, it is in fact a polemical move in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that
2: is to say, the two are not enough To understand the issue, there is a third uh, race, a third way, (coughs) at least (coughs) a third possible direction. And it's why it's so important to uh, uh, be precise in uh, detailed information about the continuity and the particularities of uh, something like nevertheless a school or several uh, uh, schools of uh, philosophy and theology in Alexandria. This is my first point. Well, the second point is, to some extent, a bit bit, uh, the exact opposite (laughs) to the first, and I I may appear contradicting myself. Uh, That is, in fact, if we understand by Alexandria the third way, the third policy, We should say, but Remy Braga has already alluded to that, we should say that Alexandria was not in Alexandria only. Uh, The best example is given by the similarity between uh, Philo and Clemence, and even before Origen, and uh, Justin Martyr, Philosoph and Martyr. Uh, Again, uh, let us focus on this uh, uh, very uh, central figure. Uh, Justin was born in Naples, he was a Palestinian. He was very well trained in uh, uh, old and s- hmm? s- the new uh, Judaism we were starting, the, disc- the dialogue with Stryphos. And he went as a professional philosopher to settle in Rome, being openly uh, a Christian. And so before being. Uh, uh, to martyrdom, he uh, published, and to some extent, is the inventor, uh, uh, and, uh, and two, in fact, one, apology, uh, to the emperor, and the emperor, or the, vice, uh, the son of the emperor at that moment, was uh, the, uh, Mark Aurelius, uh, uh, not yet emperor, but yet claiming to be, among other titles, official titles, a philosopher, and so, uh, 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 leading prosecution against the Christian as well. And uh, Justine asked publicly uh, the uh, son of the emperor, you are a philosopher, I am too, let us discuss. And we shall argue about whether it is fair to condemn the Christians, not because of what they do, but because of their name. So there, there is the beginning of the apology, which is a rational, rational discussion about faith, about freedom of faith, freedom of speech, and uh, the uh, public role of Christians. So, uh, to some extent, he was doing exactly uh, what we may call the Alexandrian, uh, following uh, the the Alexandrian way. And uh, there is a very good example in in, in that. That is, martyrdom was a part uh, of uh, the arguments uh, um, uh, discussed by uh, um, Clements and Origen in Alexandria, as well as uh, the, uh, the martyrdom, was central to uh, Justin and all his, uh, his followers, because he was, uh, he, he was the uh, of Asin and, and others, uh, and so on. So, but don't be misleaded about martyrdom. Martyrdom was a rational issue. It was not opposing confession of faith, uh, sincere, uh, heroic, but not argumentative, Opposing this to uh, an argumentation, philosophical argumentation for Christianity. In fact, it was the same question for many reasons. The first is that martyrdom is about the freedom of speaking, the freedom of believing, the freedom to deny uh, uh, fake gods, and to worship only uh, the God your consciousness allow you to acknowledge as such. So there is a philosophical issue there. And this was developed uh, uh, brilliantly by all the the, the first uh, theologians. The second thing is that martyrdom was an argument, so to speak, for the Christian against uh, the the, the prosecuted by, by, by saying, but there was a martyr before, who was condemned because he said the truth. He was atheist to the fake, false, uh, fake gods. He was a, a philosopher arguing to uh, everyone about uh, what is known and what is not known, what is true and what is not true. This Socrates. That is the apology by Justin as in the case of Clements in the uh, in the uh, for instance, is very clear. Uh, the Apologies is a re-soul of the Apology of Socrates by Plato. The difference between Socrates and Christ or Christians who are uh, doomed to martyrdom is not that uh, that uh, in both cases they are philosophers. They argue for liberty of thinking and worshipping. The difference is that Socrates was not aware of what exactly he was doing. And in addition to that, he died and is not resurrected. The Christians know perfectly well that when they claim to have the right to believe, to uh, speak, and think freely, and worship freely, they are following uh, ec- the explicit revelation of God. They know that when they die, they will be resurrected in Christ. So the difference between Socrates and the the first Christian martyr is not martyrdom. The difference is that it is an achievement for the Christian. It was not yet an achievement for Socrates. But it is very important to understand that the, the, the first conflict was Understood by the generation of people like uh, 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 Justin and Arthur Tertullian and Titian uh, uh, to some extent, and and in Alexandria, Clements. It, it was seen as a public philosophical discussion. Martyrdom is a moment when you argue. So this is quite important to understand the paradox that rationality was not opposed to the confession of faith. But the confession of faith was a claim to be rational in your behavior and your way of thinking. And it's why the Christian had a connection with philosophy. So this share a a, a clear light on another point which was uh, uh, emphasized by Rivier Bragg uh, referring to uh, um, uh, Cardinal Rasigner, who insist used to insist on the fact and in fact he is quoting at that moment uh, as you know uh, augustine City of God book six six and eight <coughs> insisting on the fact that when the Christian have to discuss with uh, uh, the pagans. They have to check what has to be taken seriously among the three kind of theologies, to speak like Varro, uh, the Roman uh, ancestor, so to speak, of uh, uh, Roman thought, uh, we distinguish the uh, Theologia kivilis, which is the political uh, celebration of the god of the city, official. Uh, the theology of, on theater of the poets, where in fact, uh, st- the storytelling telling about the god leads to uh, jokes and caricature, and making the the fun of the gods. And the third thing, which is the theology, natural theology, that is astronomy. Astronomy being uh, uh, one of the best possible uh, uh, approximation of the divine. And uh, uh, Augustine insists on the fact that Christians have only two, uh, discuss with the theologia naturalis that is with philosophy Christians are not phil- are not theologians. this is for pagans, but because it is not rational or it is a pure hip- political hypocrisy. What is serious to some extent among the uh, pagan discourse about the gods is what is more rational that is the philosophical what we call now the philosophical approach to the divine. And theology, in the modern sense, Christian theology, for instance, should only pay respect to the philosophical approach. Why? Because what the, the, the presupposition is that the Christian discourse about God is rational from the beginning. So this is another way to stick to the same position. And uh, this uh, uh, Should indeed uh, 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 give a broader uh, confirmation to uh, the final uh, point emphasized by Professor Bragg, which was that for uh, uh, Alexandrian uh, thinkers, Christian thinkers, but also Jewish thinkers, the point uh, which could uh, unify both the Talmudic Judaism just coming, or yet to come, Uh, the uh, uh, Greek philosophy and the the new uh, partner of the debate, that is Christian theology, was the Logos. It is the Logos with the, the common point, The uh, the writing of wisdom in the so called Old Testament, as repeated by the New Testament, who includes a lot of books of of wisdom, could be related to the the pagan, uh, to the Greek philosophy as well. It is the rationality of God as a pedagogue to quote the title of one of the uh, uh, most brilliant uh, uh, book written by Clemence of Alexandria, God as Logos is also developing a pedagogy and a rational pedagogy. This rational pedagogy meets uh, uh, the paideia uh, of the philosophers, the education of the philosoph- by the philosophers. So the problem was uh, uh, the Alexandrian father did not go a bit too far when they argue not only that uh, Bible writings were older uh, than Greek philosophy which is partly true, but uh, that uh, everything correct uh, in Greek philosophy was borrowed, if not thieved from uh, the Bible, they went perhaps a bit too far. But there was something very serious there. And something uh, which can be supported by uh, some text uh, of Plato, for instance, saying that the (laughs) the, the Greek philosopher are young men, they come too late, Many things were established before before them, in particular in Egypt. The idea is that there was a common ground between the two partners, (coughs) Jewish people and and Greeks. (coughs) And this common point was the question of the sapientia, the wisdom, the phronesis, the prudencia, the logos. And uh, about this, I would like to add uh, two final remarks. First, we have to keep in mind this argument, which uh, is uh, uh, com- can be found in Justin the First Apology, chapter seven, but uh, many times too uh, in uh, in, uh, <coughs> in uh, uh, Clements in the, the Stromatis for instance. Uh, 140, 14, and 115. the argument is what the philosophers are among the Greeks, the Christians are among the barbarians uh, that is the, the the Christian do the same thing, aim at the same goal than the philosopher for two different uh, uh, crowds, so to speak. And I think it is something we have to take very seriously. I insist on that because uh, uh, there was a a, a fashion a tradition uh, which was, I think, uh, really Uh, 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 an error to speak about the Hellenization of uh, Christianity in the early uh, centuries, and mostly, precisely, in Alexandria. But there was no Hellenization. Uh, Nietzsche is right, there were p- p- perhaps the exact reverse, that is, a uh, uh, Christianization of, uh, of uh, uh, Greek and Roman philosophy. But what is clear, that those two or three partners, had enough in common to allow the discussion be possible on that issue. Who colonized the other? There would be, there would be no debate about that if they did not overlap. And they overlap about the question of the logos. So uh, uh, no uh, dialogue, Uh, between philosophy and Christian theology, for instance, can uh, afford to bracket the question of rationality. And I would even say this is the same rule which should be followed for the dialogue with uh, prison Judaism and Christianity. Rationality. Now what kind of rationality? This is my my last point. Because I I would uh, nevertheless make a small reservation about this possible pre- or post-established harmony. <coughs> it would be to say uh, the point where the, 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 the discussion was made possible was the logos and not the question of being. I mean, it is very important to see that, uh, uh, indeed, the classical question of philosophy, of metaphysics, were not uh, put aside, the question of creation as a relation with the question of being and all that stuff. But there was, in fact, the core of the common discussion was what I would call referring to uh, Clemens, again, to Origin. To uh, and to uh, uh, Augustine, what I would uh, call the principle of the search for happiness. Uh, this principle uh, is very, uh, uh, to my opinion, very very powerful. In fact, uh, this formulation comes uh, from from Roman thinkers, uh, like uh, Cicero, uh, Seneca, and I guess others which I have not at the moment in mind. But it was taken over by the first uh, apologist, Christian apologist, very well explained uh, in many places by uh, Augustine. The point is this, if you meet any uh, other man uh, with uh, any Culture as different as you could imagine from yours. So you have no, nothing in common, so to speak. You can speak, you can argue, but you have not the same background and the same culture, and the same region, the same race, and so on. Uh, is there a starting point for a discussion? The starting point is that you can assume that this guy wants desperately to be happy. There is no human being who would say, I have no interest in being happy. Even the worst of them, all the most terrible having-doers, they have done evil, they have killed people, they have destroyed civilization just because they imagine it was the only way for them to reach some happiness. So this is the unconditional certitude you can assume in any discussion. There is a kind of rationality there. And it's a very strange rationality because we, uh, uh, we all desire happiness at any price, And nevertheless, we have no idea of what happiness is, which is very strange. It is precisely because of that, that we want to get it. So, there is a very radical but universal logic, logos, of the desire for happiness. And (coughs) the first centuries of uh, Christian theology, so to speak, because this term theology has to be taken with some reservation, (coughs) Uh, where, for a large part, focusing on these debates, we all want to be uh, happy. Pagan's God cannot help. We, Christians, we have a solution, which is not unknown to the Jews, which is not unknown to the Greek philosophers. And so it is a logos, but I would say deeper than a logos allowing us to have a scientific approach to the thing in the world. It is deeper a logos about the happiness of uh, the speaking one. So those were uh, my additional remarks, but I agree completely to uh, what uh, uh, Remy has brilliantly explained.
0: Friends, since we're almost at the end of the prescribed time, I think we have time for a brief response from Professor Bragg and perhaps a reply, and that would conclude our evening.
1: Well, as a matter of fact, just some words of thanks. Uh, Jean-Luc's uh, merits are all the greater that the poor fellow, for stupid technical reasons, could not access my, the text of my presentation Uh, before uh, this afternoon, two o'clock, something like that. I had sent it via email and it was lost in the sand. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, just two points, uh, uh, you were absolutely right to uh, remind uh, the audience that the title, Athens, Jerusalem, and something more, uh, alludes to a very old polemics, uh, uh, reviving the uh, opposition supposed by uh, Tertullian against two poles that, according to his opinion, could not be uh, brought together. Uh, the uh, use of the, of the Tertullian's quotation uh, by modern thinkers is relatively recent. You know, we, we can find elements of this opposition uh, in Heinrich Heine, the German poet who uh, made a um, Suppose a conflict between the Christian, and the, sorry, the, the 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 Greek and the Nazarene. He said Nazarene in order to put into uh, under the same heading uh, Judaism and Christianity. Matthew Arnold spoke of Hebraism and Hellenism. Well, there's a, a whole tradition that leads to uh, through uh, Liev Shestov, the Russian philosopher, who published his uh, Afin Jerusalem*. Uh, in 1937, and, to, uh, well, and, and this idea came to a head, uh, to, uh, found its crowning uh, achievement in, uh, in in Strauss's in Leo Strauss's essay. I was not uh, alluding to those kind of things, but it's right to uh, uh, well to draw sort of the the backdrop on which uh, my present day presentation could possibly make sense. Uh, a second point. Uh, well, martyrdom as a logical sort of uh, activity. Uh, well, I would introduce a, uh, an idea that I should have mentioned, but failed for some reason to, uh, to uh, bring to the fore, uh, the notion of paresia. Yeah. paresia You know, there's the, not only the psychological state uh, that enables uh, somebody to speak out, yeah, to confess, sort of, but a moral duty, not to lie. When asked, are you a Christian, the answer must be yes, and at all costs. And this is the deepest point, perhaps, of paresia, the point on which whole life is, uh, well, put at stake, <laughs> at stake in uh, several meanings of the word, Including the most concrete <laughs> pillarate. Yeah. Okay. Well, then, thank you uh, for those uh, uh, observations that give evidence uh, to a uh, long uh, familiarity with those people, on which I know that you are teaching.
2: <coughs> thank you. No uh, I think the, the really I think the important point is <laughs> at least. To get rid of this uh, opposition, I uh-huh. see in Jerusalem, which of which the inadequacy is, after all, uh, uh, obvious. First, because uh, uh, when people say uh, Jerusalem, they are not very clear about what moment of jerusalem mm-hmm. before after uh, the temple uh, what about the exodus what does, what do people mean when they say judaism it is not clear for uh, uh, present uh, jewish people how could it be uh, such a simple category in the opposition to the Greeks. The other thing is, what do we mean when we say Athene? At what moment do we include the historical Athene with the Greek culture uh, in the Hellenistic period as well? Or do we include uh, the philosophy, the philosophical tradition with was born from Greek philosophy? Up to what level of modernity? So uh, those kind of opposition, which in fact uh, 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 have uh, uh, played a very important role in in, uh, in modern uh, biblical studies and uh, modern Studies in the history of uh, dogmatic, mostly in Germany, uh, those oppositions are very, very questionable. And the third point is that what we know now about uh, uh, what we used to call patristic period, is that uh, uh, you can accuse the the father of the church of two opposite crimes crimes, and uh, those accusations are still alive. On one side, you can say, uh, they have destroyed uh, the uh, uh, original uh, judaity of Christianity by uh, compromising with uh, uh, Greek philosophy, which is, for instance, completely wrong if we consider for, uh, the question of Arianism, or you can say, uh, it was said, I uh, refer to that uh, by referring to Nietzsche and, and some others, uh, 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 Christianity has corrupt the genuine Greek uh, spiritual uh, uh, culture. So uh, if you can say uh, one thing and the opposite has to uh, reproach to the same uh, intellectual position, uh, it means that the question is not correctly asked, and perhaps has no real meaning.
0: So friends, with that, we've come to the end of the hour. And our, really, our only remaining responsibility then would be to thank our speakers once again for such an intellectual feast.